0: Romans chapter number 13. This this morning I want to bring you a sermon about uh, our relationship with the government. Of course, everybody's very excited about that, aren't they? Dragging myself out of bed to hear a sermon about this. Well, I feel you. I feel you. And I'm going to talk to you about how Christians respond to the government. But before I talk to you about how Christians are supposed to respond and the attitude they're supposed to have towards their government, I'd like to talk to you simply about what it means to really be a Christian. We live in a, um, you know, I guess we could still say this, we we live in a Christian country, officially. This is a very Christianized nation. If you want to know whether or not that's true or not, just hop yourself in an aeroplane and fly across to North Africa or Saudi Arabia or one of the the Arab Emirates, and you'll see a very distinctly marked Islamic nation or collection of nations, Indonesia. Every day that the world goes around, they wake up to the Muslim call to prayer, echoing out throughout the communities, calling people to come and pray. So that's a very uniquely Islamic nation. America, even though America doesn't have a lot of Christian our, our Christian our Christianness is fading as time goes by. America is still deeply marked by Christianity, and we have still in this nation a kind of Christianity that is family based or generational Christianity. Now, my mother and dad were Christians when I was born, so I was born into a Christian family, which means every every time we had dinner together, we had to pray together. My dad read the Bible in the evening times, you know, before our meals. He drug us to church, you know, three or four times a week, and we had to cut the church grass and that kind of thing. So I grew up in a Christian home. And it was easy for me as a young person to think of myself as being a Christian because I was around Christianity all the time. I mean, I could get, I could get straight A's in Bible class. and I, You know, I feel defrauded, to be honest with you. The, the, the schools didn't offer a class in Bible Because that's one class I could have done well in. (laughs) So there is a cultural kind of Christianity. That you could be the, the son or daughter or grandchildren of people who call themselves Christians. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a Christian. To be a Christian means that you've been born again. It means that you yourself have come to know God in a a personal way. And you've come to realize some things about yourself and about God. The first thing that you realize about yourself is that you have no righteousness of your own. That you are unrighteous before God. That means that God is going to hold you accountable for all your sins. God knows that you are a sinful person. He knows all the sinful things that you've done. And more frightening than that, God knows all the sinful thoughts that you have thought. And the Old Testament reminds us, and Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount, that thinking about sinning is just as bad as doing the sins themselves. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, that's because you measure by a human standard, where we don't prosecute people for their thoughts. But God, He knows what we are. He knows our, our evil thoughts. And he holds us accountable for these things. So we have to come to know that we have no righteousness. We have to understand that God is righteous and He's going to hold us accountable for those sins. The only way you can have your, that accountability nullified or to be delivered from the consequence of your sinful actions and thoughts is through Jesus Christ. Now, I figure if I said, how many of you believe Believe that Jesus existed, most people would raise their hand. In fact, uh, I'm going to mention me in my sermon, Lord willing, if I get there. <clears throat> Bart Ehrman, who is a New Testament scholar, who is an atheist, he believes that Jesus really existed. He says that the existence of a historical Jesus is nearly irrefutable and only the most foolish of scholars would say Jesus did not really live. Now he says quickly, and I don't mistake that for, my, for me believing that Jesus was God in flesh and that he died and rose, rose from the dead. I don't believe that. But Jesus really did exist. So believing in Jesus is more than just believing he existed. You have to believe the thing that, Art, that Bart Ehrman said, I don't believe. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That he was God-made flesh, that he came down from heaven and was a fleshly man, just like you and I. And that he lived a life without sin, without transgression, without ever even... Now look, let's be honest. How many of you guys think you can go a day without doing any sins? Externally. Anybody? Now come on, there's got to be some brave soul to poke up their hand. Okay, I'll raise my hand, me and Amanda. We are special, aren't we, Amanda? <laughs> now, you could probably go a day without sinning, externally. I mean, there's, there's lots of things I've not done externally. But, man, if you could look inside my mind, it'd be very different. Very different. Jesus never sinned in act or in thought. Think about that. He never thought a bad thought. Perfectly righteous in every way. But then he went to the cross and he died there as a substitute. He died there as the bearer of sins for all who would believe in him. On the cross, God imputed the guilt of all those who would believe in him to Christ, and Christ died as a substitute for sinners. And to show he paid the full price for sin, Jesus was in the grave for three days, three nights. He's in the grave. His body's in the grave, but his soul goes into the uttermost parts of the earth. His soul went and paid the full price. And then, on the third day, to prove that he had paid the full price for sin, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. The first person seen were, the, were a few women who went to, to the garden to anoint his body. They thought he's not going to live again, and he came out of the grave and he met them there. Then he appeared to the apostles. Then he appear, appeared to 500 witnesses. And he made himself available and apparent to over 500 people, and he did it for 40 days. This wasn't just, hey, it was a 15-minute window and then he went to heaven. No, 40 days. 40 days. See you know how long 40 days is? That's one work day in the school system. <laughs> For those of you who are teachers or something like that. 40 days. And then on that 40th day, he went out onto a field and he ascended bodily into heaven. He ascended bodily. And if you want to be saved, if you want to have your sins forgiven, you've got to believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And that he did it to pay for your sins. And if you'll believe that, Scripture says that you are justified before God, that your sins are all forgiven, that they're all remitted, that you've been declared innocent before God. And Romans 8.33 has that great, that great reading. Who is he that layeth anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies And once God declares you just, it can never be undone. And that's how you become a Christian, through believing. Now, this believing is going to radically rearrange your life in a big way. Now, let's look at our text of Scripture here, Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Now, I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to tell you what it means, all right? Romans 13, 1-7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. <clears throat> and those that exist have been instituted by God. These are, these are strong words. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Do you want to live without fear of the state trooper who parks at the Inverness School periodically on Straits Highway? Set thy cruise on 55, and thou shalt fear no citation. <laughs> Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath meted out through the authority, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And we trust the Lord to add his blessing to the reading of his word. In this last section of Romans, the Apostle Paul talks to us about our relationships that we have with people. And one of the relationships that we have as citizens of any nation, but particularly this nation, is our relationship with the civil government. Now, when Christianity emerged, it emerged within a context. It emerged within the Roman Empire. And the attitude of early Christians towards the Roman Empire was influenced by Jewish thought because most Christians were Jews. And Christianity is connected to Judaism, although it's a separate and distinct religion. It was definitely influenced by Jewish thoughts about Rome. And the Jewish people did not like being conquered by Rome. Now, the Roman Empire, it was massive. It spread its power all over North Africa. Basically, if there's any land that touches the Mediterranean Sea, Rome had conquered it for its very own. The Roman Empire was in North Africa, Southern Europe, even Britain, Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. And in every place that Rome spread its power, there were local religions, local regional religions that Rome would just kind of add to the mix. There was no religious freedom within Rome. What they had was religious toleration. And Rome, they didn't mind taking over a new community and whatever religion they had just saying, okay, that's fine, just as long as you put our God on the shelf too. You had to worship our God too, which was the emperor. That does not mean that Rome was not above cracking down on religions because in 186 B.C., or as the kids say now, B.C.E., the Roman Empire cracked down on a secret society of people who were connected to the, the worship of, of Dionysius, who was a Greek god of wine. It was kind of a secret society. and And it kind of made Rome a little nervous for a couple reasons one it was secret two you had to obey everything that they that they said and three this is what really freaked them out you guys are going to love this they let women be in charge <laughs> i know that offends our delicate sensibility but there you go that was a and so Rome in 186 BC they cracked down on this secret cult, this secret religion. It flared up from time to time, but whenever they saw that a particular religion would be subversive, they smacked it down with prejudice. Which, this was one reason why the Romans did not really like Judaism that well. Because the Jews had a long history of resisting oppressors. They had been their own sovereign nation, and they were a very warlike and stubborn people. And then, worst of all, they were monotheistic. And monotheistic religions, when they become in power in a country, do not tolerate any religion but that religion. Monotheism was viewed as being Detrimental to the security of the Roman Empire because they were polytheistic, the belief in many gods. Now, monotheism tends towards theocratic intolerance. And this usually results in people creating single religion states where only this one religion exists in the state or in the nation. Now, here's a modern example. I have mentioned it already. If you go to an Islamic-majority country, that's the official religion of the country. If you went to a place like Hindu, where they have lots of different religions, they kind of have it broken up into three. I think, well, there's three. I can't remember the third one. but uh, Islam, uh, Hinduism, and there's one more, maybe Buddhism. Those three religious groups, whatever you're born into, you have to stay that your whole life in India. They have anti-conversion laws. If you're born a Muslim, you've got to die a Muslim. And you can't swap over. Same for Hinduism and Buddhism in India. It's kind of an exception to that monotheistic rule. But In an Islamic country, if you want to live there, be a citizen there, you have to be, you have to convert to the Islamic faith. Now, This is exactly how it was in in the days of Moses and Joshua in Israel, too, because that was a monotheistic society. If you wanted to live in Israel during the time of the kings, you had to be, officially, technically, you had to be a Jew. Otherwise, you couldn't live there. It's a sacral state system, and I wish I had time to really talk about the sacral state and what a wicked thing it is in our time, but I don't have time, so just trust me, okay? Because we want to get out of here a decent hour, right? All in favor of going until 2 o'clock, be silent. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's a historical example of this kind of state, of a theocratic state, monotheistic, monoreligion, you might say. An historical example is Roman Catholic Europe from 400 through 1500 A.D. The same thing. Theocratic state, where if you're going to live there, you had to be a part of the religion. So Rome viewed monotheistic religions as being detrimental to the welfare of the nation because you have just these one, this one group says they're right. Now Christianity also was monotheistic. But the difference between Christians and Jews within the Roman Empire was that Christianity expressed no desire whatsoever to set up a kingdom or a government on the earth? When Jesus was arrested, he appeared before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate said, So you're a king. And Jesus says, Thou sayest. And then Jesus says in John 18:36, Jesus says this: My kingdom is Is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight. Now, this is an important statement by Jesus because he's telling Pilate. Because Pilate has Jesus, he's let Jesus be arrested because Pilate is worried that this new Christian thing, that these followers of Jesus are going to set up a government, a rival government to the Roman Empire. It's going to wreck the Roman peace. And so. Jesus is putting Pilate at ease by saying, this is not about politics. This is something different. So Christianity, biblical New Testament Christianity, because there's, there's, there's Christianity, and there's biblical Christianity. So there's Christianity, then there's real Christianity. There's Christianity that pretends to be Christianity, then there's real Christianity, <laughs> Right? Because everything has a counterfeit. Everything has a counterfeit. Now, Christians, we tend to forget that we are not here to set up a kingdom on earth or a Christian government on earth. That is not our purpose. Our founder, our head, Jesus, said, My kingdom is not of this world. He said, Well, what about the kingdom to come? There is going to be a kingdom that will come. The millennial kingdom is going to come. But it's not going to be you and me who set it up. It's going to be Jesus Christ himself who sets it up. Because the day is going to come when Jesus is going to return. He said, if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself. There's going to be a taking up into the air of all those who are believers. All the dead in Christ shall rise and meet the Lord in the air. And when we we meet the Lord in the air and get our glorified bodies, we're going to come right back down. We're going to meet him and right back down to the earth. And he's going to set up his kingdom. Revelation 19 says that Jesus is going to speak a single word. And all of his enemies, every person who has never put their faith in Christ, every one of them, are going to be destroyed by Jesus with a single word with the sword that proceedeth out of his mouth, Revelation says. I don't think that that means that there's a long sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth, a long, flexible tongue sword that kills everybody. It's just the Word. It's just the Word. Finish with the Word. And that's the only kingdom that you're going to see as a Christian is that millennial kingdom. Now, until then... We have to live under the authority of governments. And the Apostle Paul takes pen in hand and tells us how Christians are supposed to live under their governments. The nice thing about history is that we, we are at this point in history and we, look, we can look back through history and see how Christianity, had, how Christianity has fared under different kinds of governments. Christians have lived under every kind of government possible. Monarchies, theocracies, democratic republics, totalitarian socialist societies. No form of government has been detrimental to the growth of Christianity. Now, the most surprising and interesting evidence of this is when the Berlin Wall, when the, when the Russian Federation, the, when, the United, when, the, when the USSR, when it finally fell apart, And the walls came down. Christian missionaries flooded into those Soviet bloc nations. And you know what they found in those nations? They didn't find an absence of Christianity. They found a very robust and healthy Christianity behind the Iron Curtain. Just like right now in China. There are more Christians in China than any nation on earth. More Christians in China. Because Christianity is like, is like a dandelion plant. You cannot get rid of it. They spring up and mess up everybody's yard. Christianity is, is, is enduring it cannot be stomped out. It cannot be defeated. Christianity is spreading. It's creeping out across the whole world. Jesus said this in his parables. Now, Christians, however, have not been, always had the right attitude about their governments. Christians have not had the right attitude about their governments. Some of this is because governments are imperfect, and they do things they shouldn't do. That's how we all feel about things, isn't it? Now, here in this section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul exhorts Christians in Rome to submit to the authorities because these authorities are set up by God. Now, that applies to you and I today, too, in relation to our government. Now, what makes Paul write this letter? What makes Paul mention this in his letter to the Roman people? Well, more than likely it's because of the Actions of an emperor named Claudius, because Claudius was the emperor. Now, this is debatable. You guys want to hear the debate? Of course you do, because, I mean, what else you want to hear? So, when Paul wrote to the Romans, either Claudius Tiberius was emperor, or Nero was emperor. And it all depends on the dates, right? When was Romans written? If it's written early, it was the last phase of Claudius or the first phase of Nero. Now, Claudius had a wife, and her name was Agrippina. If I have another daughter, I'm going to name her Agrippina. Isn't that a great name for a girl? Agrippina, you're so pretty. Agrippina, you're so fine. I'm really glad you're finally mine. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> Agrippina, Agrippina. <laughs> what a name. Well, that was Claudius' wife's name was Agrippina. Agrippina because, you know, he's busy doing what emperors do, and she was busy doing what emperor's wives do. She was seduced or lured into the pursuit of Judaism. Bum, bum, bum. Judaism was a monotheistic religion, has very strict dietary laws, very strict dress codes. There's a lot to Judaism, and for some reason, Agrippina, they say that she was led towards Judaism. And this caused her husband some consternation, because he didn't like the fact that she's swapping religions, because as a Roman citizen, the emperor is God. And the emperor was who? Claudius. The emperor is who? Claudius. Therefore, Claudius is God. So his wife is married to God. And if you're married to God, you do what God says. Well, when she decides she's she's lured towards Judaism, which means that Claudius to her is no longer God, which means she no longer has to obey. You can see the ramifications. And if you are the potentate of the empire, what do you do to these people who are getting your wife to not view you in the right way? Get out of here. So if you read about this in Acts 18, there was, an emperor by, uh, there was a declaration by Claudius who said all Jews must leave Rome. Not the Roman Empire, that would be impossible, but Rome, the city. And so here within the city of Rome, where these Christians are living, some of these Christians are Jews, and now an order comes down from the government that says, you've got to leave town. Now, living in Rome was pretty posh, because they had Chick-fil-A and Taco Bell and all the really great stuff. And now you've got to leave town. Now, this caused people to be upset. Well, who who does he think he is to tell us what to do? And so the Christians are facing the exertions of the government. They're forced to submit, and they don't want to submit. Now, my friends, let me ask you a question. Do you like everything the government says for you to do? Do you like everything they say to do? No way. When I was a kid growing up in Virginia, you could only catch six trout. And for some reason, everybody I knew believed the true and natural limit was seven. (laughs) And everybody everybody was ripe about it, you know. You can only catch six per day, just to be honest with you. But I knew lots of guys who would catch six, take them home, go back and catch seven more. (laughs) People just don't like what the government says sometimes. Sometimes what the government wants you to do is a pain in the neck. It can be frustrating, and so Paul writes to the Romans and he tells them, "This is the way we have to view the government." Now, this is not just Paul saying this; this is the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul to us about the government. Now, let's look at this text. I'll give you seven points, and uh, this outline is not my outline. The subpoints are mine, but the main headings belong to Griffith Thomas W. H. Griffith Thomas. So uh, if you Google these points, you'll you'll probably find that. So verse 1, the duty of civil obedience. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's pretty plain. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Whoever that is, submit to them. We could say that this actually is about three governing authorities. It's about the civil government. It's about the home and about the church. That's how people think about that. But that's the wrong thinking because this is only about the government. The church authority is something else, family authority is something else. This is about the government. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now, the word subject just means to submit, to be in submission to, to be a subject of, to be in subordination to. So it's our duty. Paul says, let every person, he gives no qualifications, he says, This is how it ought to be, be in subjection to the civil government. Number two, you have the reason for this. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So submit to these authorities because these authorities are authorities that have been set up by God. Now, it's fascinating to me here, he says there is no authority except, unless it's been set up by God, which means that God is in charge of everything and God has set up all authorities, Paul says there can be no authority unless God has given it to them. God sets up governments. God takes down governments. There's no authority except from God. And those that exist, those that exist, the Roman government, if it's Claudius or Nero, doesn't matter. Those that exist are set up by God. Now, the reason for for this kind of submission is because society needs government. We need laws. We need statutes. And this is how God has intended for man to live. God has intended man to always live under authority. When God made Adam and Eve in the garden, He didn't leave them without law, and he He didn't leave them without authority. The authority over Adam and Eve in the garden was God Himself. And God gave them one law. But he gave them other guidelines too, didn't he? He said, don't eat of the tree. But then he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The word Eden means paradise, by the way. He put them in paradise, and he told them to dress it and keep it, and multiply themselves. So God does not intend man to live without law, without authority. And then ultimately we should submit because God has established this. God has established the authority. Number three, the denial of obedience. Verse number two, therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. So if we resist the governing authorities, we are resisting whom? By implication, we are resisting God. By implication, we are resisting God. If God has set up the authorities, if no authorities except except those who God has set up to rebel against them is to rebel against God. Listen to the reading. Therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Judgment. Disobedience brings consequences. Disobedience to Designated authorities will bring consequences to you. Therefore, if you want to drive past the state trooper parked at Inverness School in your car, you can go past him as fast as you want. Right? Is that right? If I had a Corvette, that thing would only see 55 on the way up and the way down. is why I have a Toyota. (laughs) (laughs) So, you can go past him as fast as you want. But if he flips on the blue lights of death, your legs are going to kind of get squishy. And you're going to pull over and you're going to get yourself a fat little ticket. So, disobedience brings consequences. Disobeying the civil authority is disobeying God. Now, I know what you're all thinking. Because I think the same way. Does this mean I can never disobey the government? Does this mean I can never practice civil disobedience? Is this what this means? Now, this is where you can get in trouble. Because some people try to, you know, we're not going to talk about that. I'm just going to tell you there are times to disobey the state. I'm going to give you those times, okay? You ready? Time number one. When the state violates its own law. This happens all the time. State legislatures pass laws, right? They pass laws. And then there'll be test cases or questions that are brought up because sometimes politicians are not always the brightest bulbs in the pack, right? This This doesn't mean that they're not wise, intelligent people. They got elected. This means that there's a lot... The law is so complicated sometimes that we pass laws that are actually illegal laws based on previous laws or... When compared to the big law of the United States, what's the, what's the big the big law for us? It's the Constitution. And sometimes state legislatures will pass laws that either are in violation of the state constitution or the federal constitution. And so those laws are declared null. And they're set aside. Sometimes a state will violate its own law. Now that happens, you're, you're going to see a lot of that in the United States of America, Because the more laws you have, (laughs) it's hard to keep them all straight. The, The Constitution for the state of Oklahoma is about 200 pages long. That's a big Constitution. I don't know how big the one for Michigan is, but I don't think it's 200 pages. So there are times to disobey the state when the state violates its own law. And this requires, knowing the law... How the law works, and it's probably going to mean you're going to be going downtown and meeting up with a lawyer. You're going, to be, you're going to spend a lot of time talking to lawyers, and we all love that, don't we? I've only been to see a lawyer one time in my life, and it almost got me fired from my job <laughs> because of it. So, when the state violates its own law, you can resist the state. Number two, if the state commands... Christians to disobey God then you resist the state this is what you see in the book of acts when authorities tell christians not to speak in the name of jesus or not to meet then you can resist the state because the state is not the lord of the conscience now we live in this great country called america which has these rights, the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment. We have the Free Exercise Clause, the free exercise of religion. And when the state violates that, we have to disobey them. We have to disobey them to remind them of what the law says. If the state tells us to do something that God has commanded us to do, we have to disobey I say, have to. You know, you have to, make, you have to make your own choices, right? You have to make your choices. I would say that for myself, if the state compelled me to do something that violated Christian principles, Christian truth, or New Testament doctrine, I would say to the state, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. We have to obey God rather than man sometimes. Now, thankfully, in this great country that we live in, that doesn't happen very often. But sometimes it does. Because the state, sometimes, the federal government, the local state, sometimes they get too big for their britches. Now, that said, resistance to the state has to be the last recourse. Because our over the overarching character of Christians is that we are good citizens. And we honor the government. We honor our leaders. Whoever they may be. Whatever sphere you find yourself in. Depending on where you live. We honor the government. So, that's the only two times I think you can disobey the state. Let's review. Because this is important. And the last few years in this country, with all this pandemic craziness, Well, it's just been wild, hadn't it? Lots of decisions have to be made. Lots of, there's there's been radicalization for some people. And then if you're not radical, well, then you don't believe in freedom and justice. Two extremes. People are so extreme sometimes, aren't they? How come everybody just can't just be, you know, even-keeled? Well, this is not the way we are. So here's, here's the two times you resist the state. Number one. If the state violates what? Its own law. Its own law. Which means you're probably going to see a lawyer, etc. Which means you've got to be sure that you know the law, because I was talking to a police officer one time about something that I was accused of doing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my definition of the law and his definition were not the same. And so I went down and talked to the city attorney, you know, to get this figured out. And uh, I walked out of, because I read the law, and I said, by Yemeni, I know what the law is. And when I walked out of that meeting, I realized that, you know, <laughs> I didn't know the law quite like I thought I did. <laughs> I was too big for my britches. <laughs> anyway, when the state violates the law, if the state commands us to disobey God, disobey the state. Now, the fourth thing we see in verses 3 to 4 is the vindication of civil obedience. Rulers are not a chair to what kind of conduct? Good conduct. But to bad. If you want to have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for you for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. Now this sword here is is symbolic of authority. He has the sword of authority. And this means he he can punish you. He can fine you. He can arrest you he could kill you he bears the sword not in vain it's not an empty threat it's a threat with teeth because he is acting as God's minister law-abiding Christians have nothing to fear and the laws of a country sometimes actually make the spread of the gospel easier because Bart Ehrman in his book, Why Christianity Conquered, says that Roman stability through their exercise of law was a key factor in the spread of Christianity. When you read the book of Revelation, it's a rest to the seven churches of Asia Minor. All seven of those cities were places on a Roman mail route. And so the letter could just travel through very easily. The Apostle Paul, when he appealed to Caesar, Paul was headed for, he was going to be killed, but he appealed appealed to Caesar. In the Roman Empire, I'm sorry for all this nerdy stuff, in the Roman Empire, any citizen of Rome could appeal directly to Caesar and have their case heard by Caesar himself. Any, Any Roman person, any Roman citizen could. Now the reason, the way they kept Caesar from being overloaded by hearing cases, was if you wanted to have your case heard by Caesar, you had to voluntarily go under house arrest for two years. You had to be in custody for two years. Now that will slow your roll. And so Paul, he buys himself two years by appealing to Caesar. And that's what you see in the last section of the book of Acts. You see the Apostle Paul, he extends his ministry he's able to preach the gospel to all kinds of people in places he could never really go before because he used the laws of the land. So the laws oftentimes can help us spread the gospel. And in America, we've been using the law to help us spread the gospel all the time. And we, 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 put, we, we put religious stuff on the radio, on the internet, and the paper, and we, we, we can really fill the world with the gospel in the United States. So there's this vindication. There's nothing wrong here. Doing good will get you good. Number five, verse number five, I'm trying to hurry. The spirit of civil obedience is here. We are to submit, in verse number five, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. The message that it sends to other people, the message that submission sends to those around us. We are to submit because of the conscience of all people. The conscience of all people recognize that submission is a good thing. Submission is good. And if God is good and His people are good, then you can expect from them to be a submissive people, submissive to the laws of the land. Additionally, submissive citizens are able to call their government to repent more easily than rebellious citizens. Because if you are a submissive citizen, your government will respect you more than they will somebody who's always just causing trouble. I used to work at a, at a factory. We made garage doors. And when, there was a Cuban guy that worked with me. His name was Willie. And every time we had a company meeting, Willie would come to the meeting and Willie was always criticizing. He was always finding fault with everybody. You ever work with somebody like that? Always running their mouth. He would dominate the meetings. Now, I think what he was really doing was trying to make the meetings last longer so we didn't have to work as much. You know how people, people are smart. And Willie was always running his mouth, always criticizing, always finding fault. Well, when layoff time came, guess who got 86th? Willie. Now, there's, there's a saying, the squeaky wheel gets what? But sometimes the squeaky wheel gets replaced. He <laughs> got replaced. And so if you, if you are a disruptive, rabble-rousing citizen, always, always in their teeth, what happens after a while is anything you say is tuned out. Anything you say is tuned out. Now, here's a good example of this, is the most recent... I'm, i got to stop this sermon. I'm going to say this, and I'm just going to put an amen to it very abruptly. All right. A very good example of this is, is this most recent thing with Alex Jones. How many of you guys know who Alex Jones is? Infowars.com. The big conspiracy guy. Now, Alex Jones... He, he just got his, he just got, you know, they, they taught him a real lesson, maybe. Got him in the pocketbook. Now, Alex Jones is ground, he, that's, the, that's the conspiracy theory guy. And he's always yakking about all kinds of stuff. He's got pictures of everything. He's got pictures of Elvis on, on a UFO dancing with Princess Diana. I mean, he just, he just knows everything about everybody. Now, not everything that Alex Jones says is false. This is hard to swallow sometimes. Not all conspiracy theories are false. Some of them are real, believe it or not. Some of them are real. But what happens is Jones is is always in, in in their face all the time so that even when he's right about something, he's discounted totally. His reputation is shot. And that can happen to you and I as Christians too. If we, if we are submissive and cooperative with the government, then we have the ability to be heard by the government, to call them to repentance or point out their error in ways that somebody who's always just running their mouth doesn't. We have to think about these things. Friends, we should submit to the government in everything for the overall glory of Christ so Christ can use us to be, to be the, I must use this word this way, to be the conscience of a nation, to call them to repentance. Our testimony will open doors for us. Now, I am really close to being done with this sermon, so I'm just going to finish it by looking at verses 6 and 7, at the practical demonstrations of submission. The practical demonstrations. Paul says, this is how you show that you respect the government. Pay your taxes, because the authorities are ministers of God. Pay your taxes, because the government requires money to operate. If the the government is going to provide for us the safety and security that we need, and the guidance and the infrastructures, etc., it requires money, so we have to pay taxes. I know he likes paying taxes, but we've got to pay taxes. That's one way we respect the government is by paying taxes. It's very practical, isn't it? Verse 7, pay what is owed, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So those persons to whom we are paying our taxes, we should respect them and honor them. Well, that's all I have to say about that. Let's stand together.